You're listening to the Holistic Travel Nurse Podcast. I am your holistic nurse here to inspire, encourage, and make you think to do your own research. To um, encourage you that your health is up to you, not to somebody in a white coat. Today, I actually had to go in for an appointment. I had to get my a physical for work. Man, I... I think it's just because I've been in healthcare and then I thought in there and I was praying and I'm like, how many years as I'm recording this in 2021 has society as a global area put medical doctors, even nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, anyone in the health profession on some kind of pedestal that they're all knowing and you kind of give them over your what to do with your best interest like so easily and (laughs) is it safe is that safe always i don't know i don't know so in front of me i have um, i two things i'm going to share with you today one i want you to go look at this rapid virus recovery this is a book that you can download by a Dr. Levy. And I'm just going to read like this is, um, I don't know if it's introduction page 12. I'm going to read a little page 12. I read through some of it. And then I'm going to share another doctor, Dr. Merritt, um, who spoke recently. And I think that it needs to be shared. So I'm taking that content um, where I could find it um, on Rumble in a small channel that they took it from somebody. These things that should be out for the mainstream media is being hidden. Um, and then it's, I think, destroying people's lives because it's hidden. So I, I'll be that platform that shares those things. And so hopefully you'll share my podcast, you'll give it a review, and you um, will get some intel from it. All right, so the first page, there seems to be in a serious disconnect between the basis of medical research and the practice of, of clinical medicine. We find an amplitude of research data on various topics. We can analyze these data and arrive to possible clinical suggestions, calling it practice medicine. Side note, that's what I put in. However, research results hardly ever reflects the medical practice. Dr. Levy's one of the few who are connecting the latest research with practical clinical application. One of the many problems with Western medicine is the singular focus on observational expressions of disease. As a result, clinical treatment, superficial symptoms, while scientists study specific molecular mechanisms by which become a patentable target for drug development none of them look at the root cause of disease oh that's everything that is everything until you see a naturopath fortunately there are alternative medicine practitioners who are usually take integrative holistic approach like myself to health and disease management but few of them understand the health disease at the base biochemical cellular physiological levels I'm learning from him that health in our cellular level de- determines on the me- molecules that are normally found in a micro 
environmental of our body in the right amount of right relationship to one another. This concept is what we've referred to as orthomolecular medicine. When micronutrients distribute through imbalance and that relationship too much calcium, not enough magnesium, therefore relates to foreign toxics, disease. So interesting. I'll share off and on more things of his book. And then I got the other book. I look forward to sharing more things to you too. One other thing is that Main Street Medical nearly totally ignores God-given design defense mechanisms of our human body. Gosh, great words, Dr. Levy, great words. We have amplified mechanisms to protect us from pathogens and invasions. These are universal mechanisms which against all invading pathogens. Our human genome, the center of defense, has been well researched, therefore, that 80,000 research papers in the literature have been used to various infections, even da 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 da, many, many others. Just name the list of them. Okay, let's listen to Dr. Levy's and then we'll get back to. Um... <laughs> okay, this one last thing. Training a medical doctor makes them very reluctant to ever using the word cure in reference to the effectiveness of any treatment for any condition, no matter how effective such treatment is, may actually be. They never use the word cure. It's treatment. We're going to treat for this. We're going to treat for that. We're going to treat for the symptoms. We're going to assist your body with this. We're going to look for the things that are abnormal. Is your cholesterol off? Is your blood pressure off? Can we diagnose you with this? Can we diagnose you with that? Can we put a label on you? Words of provocation. All right. Enjoy this. I think I'd love to meet this woman. If you ever hear my podcast, I'd love to meet you. Um, I um, am in prayer for you as you globally stand for human rights and our human health. Well, I'm glad to be back with AAPS and to see lots of longtime friends and, and meet some new friends. And I can't help but think of, you know, Curtis Kane and Dan that we just lost and uh, my friend uh, from Yuma that died a few years ago. And thinking about these guys that were here in the 1940s, 1950s, Curtis Kane was here in the 40s. Um, in the 1950s, they were in the AAPS. And, you know, I think if wherever they are, they're looking down and saying, we told you so, right? Because they told us, don't let government take over medicine, bad things will happen. And here we are in the thrall of, of unelected medical technocrats, you know. So a lot of things they said. I remember having the discussion maybe 20 years ago here about how you watch, these suggestions will become protocols, will become mandates. Here we are. We're right in that moment. And, and then I looked at uh, my old talk on Carl Brandt when I was, when I was president. And this was like 15 years ago. Carl Brandt was the chief medical officer for the Nazi war machine. And, you know, he wasn't a bad guy. He just ended up in an evil system. And I thought, and I asked the question then, when this happens to us, will we know when to get off the bus? Well, I'm going to tell you, now's the time to get off the bus. This is where the people, I get it, where people have jobs that they don't want to give up, but now's the time to realize our, prof our profession is being used and we, we need to get off the bus. 
So anyway, I might, my talk after the last talk is going to be a little bit weird because I might be saying a lot of the opposite stuff, but in a different way. So, um, you know, we, we had a, a weird 2020 and it wasn't reality. All, all, all totalitarian societies have to start with some unreality, some, a grand delusion. And although you might, I, I'm not a virologist and I'm not a geneticist and some of this is very complicated stuff. And if I'm wrong on some technicalities, I appreciate people coming and correcting me. But I think the one thing that we should be able to agree on, especially in this society, if you look around the world, what's happening to us is clearly not for our health and welfare. You know, the one thing you could say about mandated vaccines, and I'm not talking about vaccines today at all, really, but if you want to say one thing about the mandates, it doesn't matter whether these are the best vaccines. They're not even vaccines. They're viral-based genetic therapies. But for short, I'm going to call them vaccines. Um, you know, it doesn't really matter what's in them. It doesn't matter what the side effects are. All that doesn't matter. What really matters is this. If you accede to the principle that someone can tell you what to put in your body, whether it's the government or your boss, you don't own your body. And by definition, you're a slave. That is the only thing that matters here. So we have to choose if we're going to choose mandates. Um, now, so I'm going to start by going through the narrative of what we were told happened in 2020, and then I'm going to try and give you some of my ideas about the, the problems with this narrative. So the first one is, this virus lived with us for eons in commensal bliss, and suddenly it leapt from bat soup into humans that it was perfectly adapted to make sick. And this was made possible because of this unsanitary meat market in Wuhan, China. Now, China is a country of about 4 million square miles, and the meat market is located 8 miles from the only level 4 bioweapons lab uh, in China, but that had nothing to do with what happened. Um, the virus was quickly isolated from four patients in Wuhan, and full genomic sequencing, just like a ticker tape, was, was thrown out to the world that allowed tracking of the disease. Of course, our valiant, dedicated public health officials leapt into action. Uh, and nevertheless, the disease spread around the world, causing unprecedented deaths. Now, I have to say, the one thing I know is, I have one, one of my closest things I came to immunology was when I fell asleep right in front of, of Tony Fauci at a, at a meeting as an intern. It was four people in a room, so I don't think I made any brownie points. I actually still think I'm in a nightmare, and I hope I wake up soon. And then the next thing, we, we, we got this testing program going so rapidly, and it showed widespread asymptomatic sp spread of the disease. Now, we, drastic public measures were taken after we reviewed the best scientific evidence. No effective treatment was available, so the only recourse was we had to get a vaccine program, and usually it takes 15 years to get a vaccine to market, but no problem. We just happened to have this novel platform that was really designed for gene therapy and cancer therapy, and we were able to produce these vaccines within months. Now, here's the point of the vaccines. The, the, the COVID, we know, causes this horrible, unprecedented death and destruction by just getting a few spike proteins into the mucous membranes, like in your nose, it can make you sick and kill you. But we've devised this, this vaccine, and the principle is we're going to give it to you, and it's going to shower you with trillions of spike proteins, but don't worry, we're sure it's safe and effective. <laughs> um, 
And of course, this would all have worked very smoothly if it weren't for this disinformation dozen and a few other straggler rebels that are talking against this. And uh, this vaccine hesitancy required that we do some creative things like, you know, education uh, incentives. Now, you know, we had free Krispy Kreme donuts. Uh, I think it was Ohio that had lottery tickets. My personal favorite was Vegas. They gave free lap dances if you could prove that you'd gotten vaccinated. And then in Colorado, of course, you got a free joint if you got vaccinated. You can't make this up. Well, clearly, the vaccines were clearly effective. What's it? Oh, yeah, I forgot the shot in the beer. That was another one, too. Yeah, yeah, there are lots of good ones, creative ones. Um, <clears throat> Uh, clearly, these vaccines were 95% effective because ABC and every government said so, right? But nonetheless, the wily, apparently Greek virus escaped containment, and now we have to have periodic, uh, unending vaccine boosters. In fact, Israel, one of the first countries, is now on its fourth mandatory uh, vaccine booster. And, you know, after beating us over the head with this term herd immunity, we have to reach herd immunity. Apparently, there is no such thing because they've determined that one unvaccinated person threatens the whole world. That's the narrative, okay? And let's kind of look at some of the evidence here. Okay, the first thing is, is this, did this really leap out of a bat soup? Did this really naturally leap out of a bat? Well, Stephen Quay, this is a very long paper, but it's really worthwhile picking up. Stephen Quay wrote a, a, a paper, and it had to do with the Bayesian analysis of whether or not this actually happened. And he just looks at the facts as, as we know it. And the first thing to say is there's no intermediate host. They haven't found an animal this came from. There's no animal in the meat market that tested positive for this. Most tellingly, this cannot reinfect bats. Now, if something really came out of one animal and went to another, you got to believe it should be able to reinfect the animal it just went to. This is crazy, but it doesn't. And the best match is to humans. Perfect. There, there's also some technical points. You know, when a real epidemic or pandemic does break out, the first thing you see, you don't see all these people all over getting sick. If you went back and you looked in, back in time in the bank's blood, you would see antibodies to this disease where it was trying. It was starting, but it hadn't broken out. We don't have that. And posterior diversity is when, when viruses, if this happens this way, it comes out, it's not one virus that causes this whole thing. It's a family of viruses that are getting close to being able to affect humans. And they come up like raccoons trying to get into my chicken coop. It's not one. It's like they take all their cousins and everything. And they finally get in after they've been trying the wire everywhere. Well, that's kind of what viruses do to humans if this happens. They kind of get in and they do it a little bit, a little bit. And then we see that they're different genetic variations from the beginning. So that's, that's the, 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 the his, he claims there's 99.8% chance it is not uh, man-made, and I believe that. Now, I, I believed this in January, and I'll tell you, oh, did I say something? Oh, it is man-made, sorry, thank you. But yeah, it is man-made, absolutely it's man-made. I'm just about to tell you that again. So, um, so in January, I started watching this in December, and I really started glued to my, as an elective surgeon, I didn't have much to do, and I had a lot to sit around and read. And I found this paper by Prashant Pradham. This guy's brilliant. He and his guys nailed it, which one of the, which, and this is the paper that he wrote. Now, a lot of people have come on board with this since then, but here's the paper that he wrote. This is one of those, bi it's BioRx, you just upload it, you have to upload your data. Well, even before I read the paper, I suspected it was probably true because it had been forcibly withdrawn. 
Now, these guys, what happened is they said that he put it up and he claimed that they could prove this was man-made and immediately they were told, no, 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 you have to withdraw the paper. They said, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's open data source, just look at it, we're, we're standing behind this. Nope, had to be withdrawn. So I knew they'd been pressured and that's a sign. And um, the, the, the next thing was that Zero Hedge, which isn't even a medical or scientific journal, Zero Hedge got deplatformed just for reporting on this paper. That tells you something. I mean, that's your, you're over the target when you're catching that kind of flack. So um, censorship, by the way, I learned this, uh, I figured this out early on. Censorship's a way to find the truth in this mess. Um, I was on an airplane with a Taiwanese engineer and he said to me, you know why we didn't get hit with this is because we never listen to what the CCP have to say. What we do, there's actually a, a part of government, the Taiwanese government that looks at um, uh, social media censorship and when they see a pattern they start following it because they figured that's the truth and that's how they knew about this shut their borders and didn't get hit so anyway this is what the paper said this is just so perfect this is a this is the greatest paper and I tell you what I decided a couple weeks ago to try and refine the paper so I could have the whole paper to just review it for this talk you cannot find this. It took me half a day. Now, I did finally unearth it, but it's not easy. They buried this one. That's, again, a sign. This is a very important paper. So what he showed was that in the spike protein, keep in mind this, that, that you got a, they claim this is a 30,000 base pair virus, but all you need to become sick is 181 base pairs in the S1 subunit of the spike protein. And what they showed is in that subunit, there are four sequence insertions that these are completely absent in SARS, in the subpike protein of SARS, and they're not observed in any other coronavirus. Now that should be a tell. Furthermore, all of these insertions, four of them, are conserved 100%. In all the various, you know, they claim they're all these variants, but they all get put in the gene bank, and they said they're all have the same four insertions perfectly conserved. That means they're not varying. So what that tells you is that that's not a natural thing. Um, unexpectedly, they said all the insertions, when they put them in the computer alignment program like BLAST and stuff, it, they showed human in, immunos, they were consistent with human immunodeficiency virus. So it looks like four insertions taken from the HIV genetic um, parcel were, were put in different places here. Now, you probably have seen or heard Doc, uh, David Martin. And David Martin testified before Reiner Fulmich, and I wrote down the patents that I took notes of this, went back and read, listened to it a couple times, took, the, took down the patents, and I checked this to make sure this wasn't just BS. But he is actually, uh, he does, he's, his claim to fame is he created a computer program that doesn't just look at words, it actually looks at meaning. It can actually determine the meaning of what's that's reading, and, it's, and specifically he applies it to patents. He looks at what the future of technology is by watching the, the trend in patents, and he's an underwriter of these intangible assets. And this is what he said. There is nothing novel about this virus, that everything that makes you sick, that spike protein, the fur and cleavage site, the TMPRSS site, everything that is key to the disease <clears throat> has been patented before 2018. And that there are 117 patents alone for the ACE2 targeting mechanism. And that every unique attribute of this novel SARS coronavirus has been patented. Now these are some of the patent holders. I think it's interesting. My universities are university, not, I didn't go there, but the University of Iowa. Um, <clears throat> kind of interesting. Now, 
we have to put some of this in perspective. We have to have a worldview to go along with this. You don't just, it's, you can't take this in isolation. In 1999, the two Chinese colonels, Zhao and Wang, wrote this book called, it's translated to Unrestricted Warfare, but I kind of like the Warfare Beyond Rules. Now, what they basically, their point is this, that, that nobody can compete with the United States using super weapons. They really looked at the Iraq war and they said, they, you know, the United States has got this. They're, these guys are crazy. They're willing to spend billions of dollars on standoff weapons to not lose any soldiers. But we're, we can't do that. So what are we going to do? It turns out if we, if we abandon the Geneva Convention and just say everything's on the table, then you can, um, you can, you can compete. It's the David and Goliath problem, okay? And years ago when I gave a talk to the DDP on, on uh, bioweapons, uh, I quoted Rossami Hafsamjami, who said, uh, uh, bioweapons are the poor man's atomic bomb, and we should consider this. That's exactly what this is about. So, you, so rather than lob very expensive uh, you know, munitions at each other and technical jets and all these things, you just get a little bacterium or a little virus or something like that, and you create havoc. And it really makes geographic security outdated. Okay, so they have a whole thing, and by the way, this is multi-dimensional warfare they're talking about. It's not just a bio-warfare, it's an economic, psychologic, cybersecurity, political, uh, religious, I mean, it's, it's all levels of society they're, they're going to attack. What are we seeing today in America? I'll just point that out. Now, don't think it's just them, though. When this whole thing happened and we said, oh, yeah, it's a bioweapon, came, came out of the Wuhan lab, I said, uh, 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 let's not point fingers so quickly. There's a lot of finger pointing that could probably be, be had. You know, this, there's a lot of people were funded by us that weren't in China, like Frank Plummer, who's dead, and there's a lot of death, too. But this was in 2000, and these are our guys, okay? This is the Beltway insiders that do defense, you know, think tank stuff, you know, uh, Kagan and Cheney and Wolfowitz and those guys, and, and uh, Rumsfeld when he was alive. They wrote the policy for the new American century, and this is a direct quote from that. It says, advanced forms of biologic warfare that can target specific genotypes may transform biologic warfare from the realm of terror to a, quote, politically useful tool. Think about that. These are our people talking about using bioweapons as a politically useful tool. Now, <clears throat> on that note, there's something you might not have known, that this, this thing we're dealing with, this, this whatever, the COVID-19, has, has genetic and racial targeting. Uh, whether that was purposeful or not, I'm not making that point, but I'm just going to tell you what it is. It has to do with the upregulation of the ACE2 pathway uh, and the TMPRSS2 to some degree, but mostly the ACE2 pathway. So it turns out that people have different susceptibilities to have binding. It has to do with the, the ability of this stuff to bind to your ACE2 pathway. And the worst people for risk factors are Caucasians and non-African blacks. We have a 54% upregulation of this pathway. African blacks, 34%. Now, this is interesting. Finnish, Asians and Finnish are 10%, Latinos. But who thought, who realized Finnish are genetically not like all the other European Caucasians? And then at the very bottom, interesting duo here, are the Ashkenazim and the Amish. Now, um, I had been hearing, you probably had heard this since the beginning that, there, that we hadn't isolated the virus. And I said, no, I can't believe we shut down the whole bloody world and we don't have a virus. You've got to be kidding me. So finally, about three months ago, I said, I've got to look into this. I've got to figure this out because I just, I can't wrap my head around the fact there's no virus. 
Well, and by the way, this, so this is a friend of mine who's a state senator in Oklahoma who shot that rattler on his, on his ranch. But to me, it's kind of the metaphor of coronavirus. You have this huge, long virus, the 30,000 base pair virus, but really all you need is just that little nose on the head, just maybe the little part of the head. So it, I can, you know, with basic chemical, basic biology skills I learned in high school and a couple pieces of equipment, I could isolate bacterium in my bedroom. I mean, it isn't that hard to get an, a, a pure culture of bacterium, but that's a whole different thing that we have kind of accepted. Most of us that aren't in this field, I'll tell you how this happened, most of us that aren't dealing with this all the time, we just take it for granted that somebody knows how this is done and this is being done correctly all the time. But the real problem here is you're dealing with submicroscopic things. You can't do like we think of cultures. So that isn't what happened. And this comes out of one of the Wuhan papers, and I, and I had some help from Andrew Kaufman to kind of talk me through this. But here's the thing. What they did, they took 200 microliters of BELF, which is, you know, bronchoalveolar lavage fluid. And they have non-specific primers that just amplify the amount of genetic material in there. So it, it's, it doesn't select, it just multiplies. They threw it into this, what's called the Illumini mini-sequencer. And it gives you then, it takes what those, it takes the amplified G DNA and it, and it gives you the, what, these little tiny fragments, somewhere between 30 and 150 base pairs. And in this 200 microliters, it spit out 56.5 million reads. They call them reads. These are very short base pairs. Think of this 30,000 base pair virus. Now you've got a jigsaw puzzle with 150 base pairs, base pair segments. Now, a computer program is then in, employed, and it makes these what are called theoretical contigs or contiguous fragments. And so what it does, you know, it takes this piece and this piece, and it looks at what the overlapping parts are and says, okay, that could fit here, and this could fit here, and it just makes the best fit. And then, here's where the, the trick comes in. Somebody then decides which contig is the one they're going to believe, because it gives you a bunch of these. And they chose the longest one, which was about 30,000 pairs. And they had a presupposition, by the way, that they were looking for SARS. So, you know, it's kind of like if I'm expecting something, this is what I find. I don't know how much of that played the role here. This could have been completely without merit. But at least the point here is they took this contiguous big fragment that had holes. And those holes have to get filled in. And they get filled in somewhat by the computer filling them in, and then ultimately give you a probability, and then you have to decide how to fill the rest in. And it's a little hard to say, but it was done with, a, you know, it's not a formal vote, but it's by an agreement. That's how they really do it. So we, what we're left with is not a real viral, you know, specimen that you can see in a big, like, worm-like fashion. It's called an in silico genome. Now, you know, so, when, you, when it looks really real, when you put it on a piece of paper, it looks really real, but you've got to remember, it was made from a computer correlation of a bunch of very tiny pieces. In fact, there's no real big piece of this virus anywhere. Now, on the right-hand side of that slide is what Prashant Pradham et al derived, and there's, it shows the circled parts are the four insertion sites. But notice what it says. I just put this in here because you see what it says. Every time they took a piece of the, they, 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 they looked through the data bank and they got all these um, S1 subunit pieces, it said 
uh, consensus. That's the, that shows you that is a consensus of what people decided it looked like based on those little pieces. Okay, so it's a vote. This is not a real thing. And it, it even gets worse. Stefan Lanka, who is a biologist, who was a virologist and said, please don't call me that anymore. He said that the basic, he says this is his quote, the basic insight is that these manipulations called alignments simply do not correspond to any complete or known genetic material of a virus. This doesn't just apply to COVID and coronavirus. Unfortunately, this applies to measles virus. He at one time put $250,000 on the table, said, somebody prove to me you have an isolated measles virus that causes measles, and nobody could do it. So actually, somebody took him to court because he claimed he did, but he lost. So. Um, the point being is that what have we been vaccinating people against? Do you know? This is a, this is a real issue. And, and it's, not, it's not one I thought I'd find myself going down be, because I thought it was a diversion, but I think it's really key to the whole thing. And on a much, much everyday simpler note, you might have heard of Patrick King in Alberta. Love this guy. So here's an oil and gas worker. He's not confused by any preconceived notions, right? You know, I guess they're like, they're, they're, they're kind of like farmers. I mean, you can't lie to a farmer about the weather. You know, they, they can see it. And he was, he was arrested in Alberta for doing the horrendous thing of violating the state medical law of, of having too many in a gathering. There, you can't have more than 10 in a gathering. That's the health rule. Well, so he was going to be fined $1,200 for this, and he decided to fight it himself, acted as his own lawyer, basically, and he goes to court, but before he goes to court, he subpoenaed the chief medical officer of Alberta and asked her to produce a proof that this thing existed, that, that she had an isolate of SARS-CoV-2, and proof that this disease existed. Well, she couldn't give it to them. And, and, and the, the problem is they tried, to, they tried to stall, they tried to do all sorts of legal falsehoods to, to, to get him to roll over and, and God love Patrick King, he was just tough. And so at the end of time, they had to say that they didn't have what he wanted to, to but it was, they said it's immaterial and they didn't have what he wanted. Well, and this is what he said to the judge, Your Honor, just for the record, I want it to be on the record duly noted that the Chief Medical Officer of the Health, Alberta, does not have the material evidence I request to which the judge responded. Yes, they did say that. In other words, they didn't have an isolate. And it turns out there's a lot of other countries, 90 other countries, including our CDC, admits they don't have an isolate of the virus. Another point on the table here is Millionaire offers 1.2 million to prove that anybody give you an isolate of the virus. Now, if I were working in somebody's lab and I knew we had an isolate, man, I'd go get that tomorrow. So that kind of tells you something. Now, we talked a little about emerging infectious diseases, and I, and I, you know, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with what our previous speaker said about bacterial things and parasites and stuff that. But I have to say, when I was a medical student in 1976 and learning about infectious diseases, we talked about tropical diseases, we talked about malaria, we talked about leishmaniasis, all these things. But what we didn't talk about were these emerging infectious diseases like A, like these viruses that came out of the jungle, you know? And, and when I think about it, there's really no proof of where it came from, even now. 
This is later. This is now in the mid-80s that started to be talked about. And we still talk about, well, we paved the Kinshasa Highway, and that's what caused all this stuff to suddenly come out of the jungle. After thousands and thousands of years of humanity there, it suddenly came out in the mid-80s. And it's interesting that when you go through these papers, you will stumble upon this, this comment over and over, uh, like this paper. I mean, I don't care about the decoding 19 genome here, but it's, these guys are genetic people, and they're, they're looking at all this stuff. And they say, it is also still unclear as to the events that led to the virus emergence from bats. Here's another one. Zoonotic coronaviruses have only rather recently seriously impacted humans as far as known. So again, for thousands of years, nothing happened. And then suddenly, in the mid-1980s, we started having all this stuff come out of the jungles at us. Well, I think there's, and, and I noticed that the previous speaker uh, said, you know, it's interesting that when these viruses come out from the animal to humans, they change a lot. I thought that was interesting because, yes, they do, because maybe it's not natural. So I started kind of looking at what was happening, and I kind of remember some of this. In the 1980s, from 1981 to 1985, there was a, or 1984, there was a project in South Africa called Project Coast. Now, we know a lot about this because of the Truth and Reconciliation um, Committee by Desmond Tutu. And this is kind of ugly stuff, but they were basically trying to create bioweapons to decrease the black population in South Africa, to even the demographics. And the head of it was Dr. Wutu Basson, I'm probably mispronouncing it, he's a cardiologist of 7 Med, Med Battalion back then. And, and we theoretically were, you know, we had signed the, the Biologic Anti-Bio-Warfare Treaty, we theoretically weren't doing any, any of this stuff. But it turns out a guy named Larry Ford, who was an OBGYN doctor in, in Los Angeles, and by everybody's outward appearance, he was a family man, who just normal OBGYN doctor, but he was going back and forth to South Africa carrying things like, you know, uh, manipulated cholera and things that, that could be used against the black population in South Africa. They called them uh, kafira killing germs, which apparently means the black bomb. Now, there's a lot of suicides around this story, too. Uh, David Kelly was another guy involved who was about to testify to MI5 in the night before he committed, he, he committed suicide. And uh, Larry Ford's dead, too. But there are a couple of people still alive. Doc, I think he's still alive. At least he was at the time of the Truth and Reconciliation thing. Dr. Mike Odendahl was a former senior microbiologist, and he remembered all this, and he talked about Project Larry. And he said this, quote, Ford spent an entire day showing us how to contain or contaminate ordinary items and turn them into biological weapons. So what's he talking about? See, he's talking about putting something on your doorknob or putting something. In fact, he talked about a lot of things. And I actually had Jeremy, I think it's really, if you want to get a flavor, and I think it's important because, quite frankly, in today's world, the one thing, if, you, if nothing else, you should take away from this is really a lot of suspicion about what's happening in the world around you. Because we have entered the world of synthetic biology. Like it or not, just like we entered the nuclear age, we are now in the age of synthetic biology. And strange things can be going on. And we attribute them to natural things that they're not natural. Just be aware of that. And so that's what this is about. So, so Jeremy has a handout, or he'll, if he doesn't have enough, he'll electronically send them to you. And it's a list of all the things they came up with. For example, they tried to kill some guy with a poisoned shirt. Unfortunately, he lent the shirt to somebody else and it murdered that guy, you know. That's the kind of thing. Or, like I said, putting stuff on a doorknob. Um, that's what they're talking about. Now, he's not the only one that said this. This is from the book, The Chinese... Um, 
Kernels wrote, and that's, it's a book worth reading just for the lovely translation literature. I mean, it's kind of neatly written, but they said, some morning people will awaken to discover with surprise that quite a few gentle and kind things have begun to have offensive and lethal characteristics. Again, my toaster's poisoned. I mean, that's what they're talking about here. And unfortunately, that could explain some of what we're seeing here. Now, before I get into that part of it, I just want to go over the death count because one of the things I found is if you try to go, I don't know, your state may be different, but some states, especially the states that are hooked up directly to the CDC for their, all their medical stuff, you can't get a death count. In Nebraska, I wanted to know what was the death in 2020 versus 2019 versus 2018, and they couldn't give it to me. And the guy that runs the web said, I can't believe it's not there. Wait a minute, let me, let me work on it. Called back, he says, it's not here, but I got, a, I got an idea. I'm going to hook us up. Let's call the lady. I know who does it. She actually takes the death certificates and counts them, and that's how I got the death count. But they don't make it easy. Trust me, you can't just believe what the CDC is telling you on anything. But, but what you can look at, what I did, so I went state by state as I had to. But this is the worldwide. The world does get that data, even though they don't present it on the web to you as, the, as a local member in the U.S. So there were 1,850,000 deaths, essentially, in 2020 for 7.8 billion people. And if you calculate that out, that's a survival rate of 99.98%. Now, seasonal ILI, how many people here know we don't count flu anymore? We haven't for a long time. We count influenza-like illness. They tell you, oh, get your flu vaccine because 60,000 people died of flu last year. No, they died of influenza-like illness, and only 4 to 7% of that is flu. They used to tell you that on the CDC website. That's all been taken off. Now they just tell you ILI as if it were flu. But at any case, so the, the flu survival rate was 99.99%, so a slight difference, not much. Compare that to 1918, where the survival in 1918, and this is probably uh, over, overestimated, was 98.3%. I mean, if you, alert, if you talk to people whose families lived through that, as I, in my rural area, they remember whole families, one of my neighbor's grandparents went over to check because the, the neighbor's cows were all lowing, and they told you back then, don't go to church, that's how people are getting sick. They went to church, he couldn't figure out why the cows were making noise, walked over through the pasture to their house, they're all dead on the floor, the whole family. So that was a bad disease, okay? We're not seeing that kind of thing. But it was 98.3%. But here's the question you ask yourself, where's the worst place in the world? If you want to protect yourself, where's the worst place in the world? Well, it's New York State that had a 0.19% death per capita last year. <clears throat> where's the best place in the world? Well, and, and actually there's a typo there on Uganda. It's actually, Taiwan, I told you why they, were, they locked themselves down early. So eliminating that, where's the best unlocked nation in the world? <laughs> Uganda. I mean, former home of Idi Amin. Not some place you identify with the latest and greatest medical stuff. But here's the deal. As, as Andy Schlafly said last night, you are free enough, in, and I have patients from Senegal and Nigeria, which are about the same. Uganda actually was 0.00005%. It's four zeros. I just missed one. Why is it so low, 10,000 times better than New York? Well, there might be several factors, but one of them is, is you're free enough in Uganda to walk down to your corner store and buy ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine over the counter, and we are not. And that says something right there. That's the thing. By the way, everybody's state governor has the authority to change that. We looked at that at AFLDS, and they have the authority. It's not something that's written in stone federally. They can change it. They could make it over the counter. 
Here's another graph of deaths, and you can see the blue line is death, and it stayed about the same. The red line is actually growth of population, and you can see it went up in 2020. Um, death rate on the, on the chart on the right, it was 7.612 per thousand. But look down, 2011 to 2014, we're all higher. So where is this pandemic? Okay. Now, it didn't always look like it was a nothing burger, though. I'm going to say, I'm not here to tell you it wasn't a disease. It did, something didn't happen. When this whole thing started, about the middle or first part of January, I started graphing deaths per day whenever those things were available on various countries. This just happens to be Spain but because I did the best on the prettiness. But, you know, I could have picked the U.S. or anything. When it first broke out and you started graphing it, what it showed was a, an exponential rise, okay? You heard epidemiologists say, oh, this is the biggest R-naught value we've ever seen, meaning transmissibility. It really looked bad, okay? But then what happened? It just quickly became the normal seasonal death curve. We always have a winter death curve, and it just kind of slumped into that normal seasonal death curve. I projected out at this point, roughly this point in uh, the U.S., had, the, had we continued on the curve it started, it would have killed two million people in America alone, in the U.S. alone. But it didn't do that. It just became a normal death curve. So what is happening? So here's, here is the, the death curve that happened during the big outbreak. It's the red line. Okay, that's the deaths. Well, as the deaths started going down, 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 and people were getting less afraid, what did we start doing? We started counting cases and reporting cases. Now, never since the time of Hippocrates have we called a case anything but a sick person. But suddenly the case is just a positive test. And what did that do? It expanded the numbers. It, I mean, if you looked at just that blue line and you're just not educated about what this means, that's, that's a panic-looking thing. Now. Where did we get those case numbers? Well, we got it from the testing. Now, we all know, I mean, every, every garage store owner now knows, knows the name of Kerry Mullis. So everybody knows about Kerry Mullis saying, this, you know, we shouldn't be using these tests. It's not just about the cycle numbers. It was about the inability not to contaminate them in general use. They're not meant for that. They're meant for highly controlled laboratory use. But in any case, Let's give them the fact that, that, that they, they did the, let's, let's assume that these highly trained people in our, in our CDC were just trying to do the right thing. And so they, they put the best thing together. They got this test together. But here's the problem. All over the world, the test was done wrong. Now, I looked at, this is the Thermal Fisher um, directions. It's not like they sent these tests out and didn't send them with how-to booklets, right? They had all had a how-to booklet. And if you look at the how-to booklet, it's very clear from that graph, and it's good from the, from the scientific literature that between 20 and 30 cycles is what you want. If you want a pure specimen, you don't want any false positives. Because again, in a lab, you're looking for, did I find something? It's qualitative, not quantitative. It's, did I find this particular DNA or RNA? So that you want to go 20 to 30 cycles. <clears throat> and in fact, the CDC down below, it said the CT value cutoffs for all genes and patient specimens, or no, this is from the thing, sorry, are 31. So um, 31 is actually, should have been the cutoff. But they routinely were cycling these tests between 40 and 50 cycles, average about 45 across the world. Now, what does that say, OK? I mean, these lab managers are highly trained professionals who know how to set up a test. They know how to train their staff. They know how to do quality assurance. This is what I tell, this is the story I tell my friends who don't believe there's any conspiracy here. Everybody just tried to do the best, and this darn virus has taken us down, and there's nothing we can do. It's an act of God. 
<clears throat> I tell them, listen, not only did these lab managers all around the world do the test wrong, they did it wrong in the same direction. They all overcycled it. I mean, if they all had some kind of brain hissy fit, you'd think some of them would have accidentally undercycled, right? And even worse than that, on the magic day of January 21st, 2021, they all had an epiphany and they got better and they suddenly started cycling correctly. So there's two worldviews here, and if you can come up with a third one, I'll take it. The first worldview is that we had a group psychosis of lab managers, and they all overcycled the tests exactly the same way in 2020. I'm not believing that. Or that someone told them to overcycle the tests. Now, why would you do that? Okay, There's only one thing that did, and that was create fear in the public. Now, we don't call a conspiracy, you don't have a conspiracy to throw a surprise birthday party for somebody, right? A conspiracy, by definition, is somebody, two or more people doing harm to somebody. Now, overcycling, this, the, the decree to overcycle couldn't have come from one lab because it was all the labs, all the states, all the nations in the Western world. By definition, this is an international conspiracy because it was to do harm to the people of the world. Now, this is just, I can't prove this part. This is my just thinking about what really happened here. So let's say this thing started <clears throat> with a man-made pathogen. And let's start out by saying, what do we, what would we call a virus? We call a virus a little bit of, of, of genetic material wrapped in a lipoprotein coating that gets in your mucous membranes and can make you sick or kill you. What would we call a, 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 a a genetic poison, a man-made genetic contact poison. Well, we would call it a little bit of genetic RNA or DNA wrapped in a, in a, a synthetic lipoprotein coat of my design that gets into your mucous membranes and makes you sick or kills you, right? Do you see a difference? The only difference is one is synthetic. Like I say, we have entered the world of synthetic biology. So I think this is, this is personally what I think happened. If this had been an airborne deadly virus like they said, we would have seen it rip across Pittsburgh and you know Philadelphia and, and Omaha and Paris, but it didn't do that, did it? If you really look at the numbers, it, it, it hit Wuhan, it hit Lombardy area in Italy, and it hit New York City, and then it kind of fizzled out. And I'm gonna show you a paper that may discuss how that technology was brought about. But that's what happened. So I think that this was a pathogen that was created that started it and then kind of fizzled out. They let it go, they knew it was gonna be the normal fuel, fuel uh, flu season. So then it just became the flu season. But what kept the fear going? We started doing these tests that were, quite frankly, when you have a test, like Michael Yin said, these tests are 90% false positives. I still see doctors getting them and, and kind of saying as if it could make some difference. You know, it may not be perfect, but maybe I can make some sense of it. No. When you have a test with no gold standard that has 90% false positives, you can't make any sense of it. This is like a clock that is broken and does the right time twice a day. We need to abandon the testing. It is absolutely critical because that is misleading us even today with well-thinking people. We've got our mind cranked around this thing. Now, and then what was the purpose of all this? It was to create Stockholm Syndrome. This is classic psychologic manipulation. You isolate people. This is what we know to do to prisoners. You, by the way, you know, we talk about quarantine in medicine, and we've never quarantined the well, only the sick. What, how do we get the term lockdown and just accept it as normal? Lockdown is a term that we use for prisoners. Let's pay attention with the words they're using. 
So we went into lockdown, we did all these terrible things, and we isolated people, then we monopolized their perception. That's the second point in Biederman's chart of coercion. He, he looked at the Korean War veterans that were turned against America and how they did it. And, and what they did was they, they locked them down, then they monopolized their perception. So these people that normally would listen to CNN or something for half an hour a day suddenly are home in their homes with nothing to do but worry and try to get information, and they're listening to CNN nonstop or whatever. You know, they could be listening to Fox News, I don't care, but they were nonstop getting this fear, you know, broadcast at them. And then, here's Dr. Dr. Fauci's part in this whole thing. He was the doctor of confusion, okay? And I'm just going to put this up because he was the doctor of confusion by the, by the mask thing. Um, his, his primary job, I'll tell you later, but this was a secondary job, was to make confusion. Because if you take people that are afraid and you add confusion, I learned this from uh, McDonald, our, my pediatric psychiatrist friend in LA, and what he said, that is how you get Stockholm Syndrome. I asked him, I learned that because I asked him at dinner one night, uh, I said, would you please, for the love of God, explain to me who P these people are driving around alone in a car in a mask? And his comment was, they're Stockholm Syndrome people. So I really kind of felt with more sympathy that they're not, they're so afraid that they're willing to do more than what their captors say. If they say to wash my hands five times a day, I'm going to do it 20 times. Wear a mask, I'll wear 10 masks, all that. That is what Stockholm Syndrome is all about. And if you want to see some pretty tragic things, it's what it does to our children. This is why, this is a war against our children, and we'd better wake up now. This is my point. Masks are at the key of this, by the way. But the, you know this is nonsense. And I, when I faced, when I went down to Omaha to, to discuss the mask mandate, I thought it was going to be a slam dunk because there's no science that demonstrates this makes sense. But what I found was I found the entire uh, University of Nebraska academic people in, viral, in uh, infectious disease and the CEO and all these people standing on the other side demanding masks. And I just want to go back in time now and take, take a picture, like, like you see it in the restaurants, you see it in, you know, it's just crazy. You go into a restaurant and you have to wear a mask six feet in, but then you, you're safe when you take it off to go to the bar. You're safe when you sit at your table, you know, down I'm safe, but up. No, I'm dangerous now. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'm dangerous. I have to put the mask back on. I want one of them to look me at the eye and tell me this is contagion control. Are you kidding me? Nobody in their right mind thinks this is contagion control. This is people control. It's one of the things in Biederman's chart of, con uh, of coercion is insist on stupid things. This was another one, social distancing. When I saw this kind of thing, I said, six feet, are you kidding me? This is not something science comes up with. This six feet's a made-up number. You know, and by the way, that was proven by Lydia Barub at MIT that showed this. That, that the, and, and also, this isn't the way contagion happens, even if viruses exist the way we thought they did. Okay? They're, they're like part of air fluidity. You know, read Dennis Rancourt in Canada. He's a physicist. And he sh shows how this stuff's all over the place, whatever comes out of your mouth. But anyway, six feet. I thought it was just a made-up number. Well, you know, it gets even crazier. Maybe it's not. I ran into this because I reviewed this lady's book on the occult of masks. Okay, she wrote a book on the occult, on, on masks and why it's anti-Christian, and I just reviewed the medical stuff. But I got so interested in her book that I read the rest of it. And it turns out they don't call themselves Satanists, but in the old, the old religion, what they call it, the, the indoctrination, what do you do? You wash your hands, put on a mask, and stand six feet apart. Is this accidental? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out. It's a little, little uh, food for thought. Okay. Now, here's the, the issue of the, 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 the dreaded Delta variant, okay? 
uh, part of this, I, I tried to work this out myself with the numbers, but I really don't have the, the capability of doing it myself, but you can try it. I looked at where the Delta variant hits the, the how, what is the difference between the Delta variant and the regular, what we've been having, right? And, and it's very small. The difference is very small in a couple sites in the spike protein. What I did find out is that these, you go back in the basic science of these vaccines, they were designed to be attaching to a highly conserved area, meaning the areas that don't vary. So this Delta variant, in my opinion, is all smoke and mirrors. And at the most, it's a, it, they, the, the points in the spike protein, coronavirus has a specific capability of, of every, you know, we all learned about variable and hypervariable regions, but it varies by species. And coronavirus turns, about, turns out to be very low on that scale of variability relative the amount of variation it does per day. So this, I think it's just nonsense. And, but at the most, it's 0.3% difference. That's what, and, and that's what uh, uh, the former uh, chief science officer, Pfizer said, who's a science officer. Anyway, um, Michael Yeadon, this was what he said. The difference between the Delta and this was 0.3%. It's nonsense. And here's the other point. We had blood that was banked from a SARS survivor from 2002, and it turns out it neutralized the current virus. Well, the, this is about somewhere between 70 and 85 percent the same as SARS. So here's a difference of 20 to 30 percent, and it still neutralized it. Why are we worried about these vaccines? No, vaccine escape is not what's happening here. What's happening here is they don't really want to admit the vaccine's killing you around the world. I mean, this is the number of countries where COVID's very high and there's alerts from, this is from the CDC, and Malta is the most highly vaccinated country in the world, but it's also on the highest level of alert for COVID. Keep in mind too, that when this first, you know, the, one of the good um, experimental areas is um, Israel, and Israel showed, uh, they, that when they claimed it was 90, again, you can't just listen to government data. Israel said, after they started rolling out the Pfizer vaccine, they used one vaccine, one country, kind of homogeneous, smaller country, they, at, at February 12th, by February 12th, they had, they had vaccinated, um, what was it, it was like 30% or, no, they'd vaccinated 12.5% of the people by middle of February. They had 51% of the COVID deaths were in vaccinated people. Now that wasn't the government. What the government said it was 95% successful. Everything is 95% effective. That's a propaganda talking point. That's not a research number. But Seligman, Dr. Herb Seligman and his partner Chaim Yativ in, in uh, Marseille, France. Seligman is an epidemiologist in Marseille, France, and he looked, they looked at the numbers and they said, that's not right, and that's what they came up with. They said, 51% you, you, of the deaths were in, in, uh, in vaccinated people. Now, when they broke it down by age, they showed that if you're over 65 years old, you had a 40 times more likelihood of dying of COVID than if you didn't take the vaccine. Now, why are we hearing in America something very different? Because they're purposely massaging the numbers. They don't count you as vaccinated unless you're two weeks after the second vaccine. But I can tell you, looking at like, like the Pfizer or the Moderna, I can tell you, you can just go to VAERS and you'll find that most of the damage happens. People die of blood clots or they die of a brain bleed or they, they die of COVID. Before we were starting to do this new definition, it happened within two weeks. And they don't count you as dead of COVID even if you're fully vaccinated 
I mean, if you, if you, yeah, they don't count it within two weeks of the vaccine. So it has to be after two weeks of the last vaccine dose, then you're fully vaccinated, then you might be counted. The other thing is, there was a, the CDC came out with a recommendation of cycle amplification for vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And it's different. So the unvaccinated get cycled up and the, and, and the vaccinated get cycled down. You know, this is, it's, it's just fraud. I'm sorry, it's just fraud. Because all around the world, in Wales, just came out. Wales said, um, what I just had the numbers. It was like 83%, I believe, 83% of the people that were seriously ill were in vaccinated people. And um, in a country where 63% is vaccinated. Well, I have a friend that used to be on Fox News and she said, she says, she's got a radio show now, and she says, anybody that believes in the Delta, virus, Delta variant is a member of the Lambda Delta Nu fraternity for morons. I thought that was pretty funny. I just threw that up. Okay, so I'm running out of time. So real quick, I'm just going to say, here's early treatment. This is the, the uh, International Hydroxychloroquine Study Group that's online, and they showed a meta-analysis of all the studies. The bigger the, the, the green thing, the better it is. And all these studies show a positive result. The chance of it being... Uh, fallacious, the chance of it actually having um, the probability that it's ineffective is less than one in 10 million at the, at, by December 9th. There was only one negative study. Here's the earlier study that showed countries that used hydroxychloroquine early and often had a 70-some percent, I think it's down to 70 percent now, um, improvement rate. And you've got you to ask yourself, why do they have to lie about it so badly? You know the, the issue about these papers, you probably heard about these papers that got withdrawn. But they didn't get withdrawn because the numbers got massaged. They got, number, got withdrawn because they couldn't produce a database at all that showed that hydroxychloroquine didn't work. They claimed they had the worldwide database. They had nothing. And the business, Surgisphere, that claimed to have given them the database was actually run by, or not run, it was owned by somebody else, but the people theoretically staffing it were a science fiction writer and a porn star. Well, an adult content model. They call it an adult content. You know, you just can't make this up. Now, this is, the, you should follow these guys, drastic. Decentralized radical autonomous search team investigating COVID-19. It's a bunch of guys on Twitter, and I have a friend that was one of these people. Um, and they actually look at all these documents and they're trying to figure out what's really going on. And they are not part, I really think it's legit. I actually sent some of the references here to Mike Adams because his, uh, you know, natural news, Mike Adams, he, he has labs all over the world, including Taiwan, and his wife is Chinese and reads Chinese. I said, have her just review some of these and make sure that they're not getting suckered into this, and they're uh, apparently legit. But this is what they showed. They showed that the funding in 2018, EcoHealth Alliance, run by Peter Daszak in conjunction with the Wuhan um, lab, uh, Institute of Virology. They proposed to DARPA a $15 million project to look at advanced human pathogenicity BAT-CoV project. This is a gain-of-function project, and by the way, it's now legal again. It was rejected for full funding, but not by because of what they were doing, and so it was subsequently agreed to that the HNHS would fund it, and that's what happened. And, and although the uh, Wuhan lab denied having this, they put in this this is why these guys are so great. They unearthed what's really going on by the paperwork that was paper trail. You know, Wuhan said, no, no, we don't have any bats here. They did. They had caged bats, and they had like 20,000 plus specimens of deadly chimeric bat coronaviruses. In other words, they'd taken genetic material from different bats and recombined it. And they proposed injecting these things into humanized or batified mice. 
So these are some of the people involved. So here's the summary. The summary is we have an artificial pathogen. We really don't know much about the disease because we don't have a sufficient number of uh, autopsies. You know, if we had 200 cases where hospitals determined that somebody was dead of COVID and we could do a blind, unbiased autopsy somewhere sequentially and find out really what people are dying from, I think we're going to find it's a mixed bag of diseases, including possibly some other uh, potentially bioweaponizable things, but we don't know that because we don't have the autopsy data like they did in 2018, I mean in 1918. In 1918, William Welch went down and autopsied sequentially all these guys that died, or a lot of them, and he found out things, for example, part of the death was due to Bayer aspirin overdose. Um, but anyway, we have these false tests and we have them purposeful misdirection by our medical officials. That's the kindest uh, explanation. The way this brought down the whole world is through the money that flowed through Tony Fauci. You know, David Martin estimates that he spent 120 million, 20 billion, 120 billion dollars just in creating, taking natural genetic material and creating pathogenic toxins for humans. That's basically the sum of what he did over 40 years. But he did more than that because he had all this money to flow out to the, the hospitals and what he did was he funded all these hospitals with NIH funding which then overbuilt and now if they don't uh, if they don't push remdesivir and they then they give you they talk about hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin and they don't fire the staff that are doing that they'll lose their funding. So the bag man in the mob terminology is the guy that takes the mob boss money and he spreads it out to, to the to the capos and when they don't their job he breaks their legs now you know that's really what's going on here and and if you notice they're trying to throw Fauci under the bus right now and there it's a psychological operation they say if you look if you listen they, they have two words linked together Fauci that bad guy you know the new the, the the people in the news say we couldn't we just had no way of knowing he had funded this what a bad guy he, he got he just slipped by us we investigative reporters and then because of his actions there was a lab leak that did all this so they, they connected two things. Fauci bad, don't look any further. Don't look higher up for where it really is, and lab leak. So I'm gonna leave you with some papers that you should just consider, and you can decide motive of your own. In, in, there's, since the time of the Kuomintang, the, um, immune, the uh, bioweapons bio were couched as veterinary studies. Now, in, in, again, there's never been a disease that they know of coming out of mice in Australia to justify this called an emerging infectious disease in Australia, but they said there might be. So we have too many mice, let's figure out a way to get rid of them. Um, they took the mice, they vaccinated them with something that sterilized their ovaries, and then they put them back in the wild put a group of mice vaccinated out back in the wild. They went and they shed on other people. You've been hearing about the shedding of these vaccines that we have, right? And it's a real deal. Um, they shed on other people, on other mice. They became sterile. And then those mice shed on yet a third group of mice, which became sterile. And then it kind of fizzled out in the population because they didn't want to kill all the mice. But they have mathematical formula that says, if you want to decrease the population this, you know the death and birth rate, that you can then give this number and you're, you're, you can get rid of the population down to this level. Now, I know the shedding's real, and it, what does it do? It disturbs women's menstrual cycles. It causes young girls to bleed, elderly women to bleed. And guess what? The FDA and the EMA knew about this. They put out circulars caused, calling for the vaccine researchers, for these genetic agents, to protect certain people who might be at risk from this secondary shedding. But did they tell us that? Absolutely not. Secondly, the Japanese looked at the pharmacokinetic study on this, and they didn't use the whole vi uh, vaccine. They just used the lipoprotein coating, the matrix, it's called, matrix M. And guess where, and they looked at the pharmacokinetics, it, it, 
it collected in the ovaries 64 times more than the muscle. Now keep in mind, these were designed to be genetic agents, like for cancer therapy. So they were targetable. And Novavax that made the Matrix M says they were targetable. Here's a fun thing I just threw in. The S1 subunit, you can buy it online. And here's where it goes. They are down in Mexico making COVID vaccines in GMO tomatoes. I kid you not. They've already started doing this. Uh, for other vaccines, hepatitis B, polio, think about this, GMO crops that will vaccinate you without you knowing it. And this is Daniel Garza, it's biofarming, he's a big guy in this, and he's, there's 200 acres, would produce all the childhood vaccines for the world. Uh, we have a few biosafety obstacles. So I'm going to leave you just with some questions because these are things I couldn't talk about. Just if you want to go further, look at where did mycoplasma come from. That's an interesting rabbit hole. Ask yourself right now, why are they spraying for mosquitoes carrying West Nile virus in the fall? And finally, why did Charles Lieber get indicted? Look those things up. Thank you. All right, that was pretty long, so I won't continue and go off on my rant. I am, I think this was too long of a podcast, but I thought it was important to put out there. Thanks for listening.